Thanks for joining us, everyone, at 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries podcast and part two of Miracle Off Cape Cod. This is your host, John Hagedorn, and it's great to be back with you today. In part one, we covered the backstory of the 1952 New England Nor'easter and of the two T-2 tankers that both split in half within five hours of each other in that terrible storm near the coast of Cape Cod, Massachusetts, leaving four separate tanker sections, each one with crew, floundering helplessly in 60 to 70 foot waves in a blinding ice and snowstorm that would end up claiming 42 lives, and many more, had it not been for the incredible efforts of the U.S. Coast Guard. We ended Part 1 with Bernie Weber's arrival back at Chatham Coast Guard Station with 32 survivors, a miracle rescue, as it was called by some in the press, but the story would not be complete without telling of the heroism shown by other Coast Guard details as they fought impossible seas trying to save the other three ship halves and crews, those being the bow of the Pendleton and the stern and bow sections of the Fort Mercer. While Bernie Weber was unloading the Pendleton survivors in Chatham Harbor, the 32 crewmen still alive on the Fort Mercer's bow were huddled together trying to stay warm. Several of their crewmates had fallen to their deaths in an earlier rescue attempt. The first vessel to reach the Fort Mercer was the Short Splice, which was a transport ship, but the seas were too large for any attempt to get close, so the Short Splice had to stand by, ready to try to grab any men who jumped or fell into the water. Two Coast Guard airplanes, despite the terrible weather and high winds, were able to make a pass over the Fort Mercer's stern section and reported in on what they were seeing, which was that the lifeboats were gone and that the stern section was almost awash, meaning there didn't appear to be much time before it sank. Earlier that day, the radar equipment newly installed at Chatham Life Saving Station was picking up two strange large objects just five miles offshore from Chatham, and they had radioed one of the two planes, both of which were fighting to stay aloft in the brutal storm, to check it out. And that's when one plane confirmed the presence of the two sections of the Pendleton. That was the first time the Coast Guard knew that they had four tanker sections in need of rescue. At 6.30 p.m. on the 17th of February, the cutter Yakutat reached the bow section of the Mercer, and in addition to high winds, snow, and towering waves, they were now dealing with darkness. They tried to shoot lines over the Fort Mercer, but the wind was blowing so hard that the lines couldn't reach it. The Fort Mercer's bow was heaving wildly, and the Yakutat couldn't get close without risking a collision. So, like the short splice, they found that all they could do was stand by. Two 36-foot lifeboats were also trying to make it to the Fort Mercer, but were getting beaten back by the high seas. Finally, the lifeboat commanded by Donald Bangs received orders to turn east and head for the newly discovered Pendleton, near Chatham. He made it to the Pendleton's bow section, which looked eerie in the darkness, with its bow containing the officer's decks pointing straight up, too steep for anyone to climb up or down. Bangs blasted his signal horns, but got no response. Long wire cables hung all around the floating mass, and Bangs couldn't risk getting too close and having the cables get in his prop. The fractured bow of the Pendleton was a ghost ship, it appeared, so Bangs and his crew motored on in search of the stern section. They were more than halfway to the stern when their radio crackled, and the voice of the captain of the cutter McCullough reported that he was at the bow of the Pendleton and had seen a light flicker, meaning there were survivors on board. They returned, and this time saw a man standing on the bridge. They tried to get a line up, but couldn't. 
The man was shouting, but the wind made hearing impossible. The man then jumped into the sea about a boat's length away from Bang's 36-foot boat. He came to the surface, and at that moment the biggest wave they had seen that night broke over their lifeboat. Precious minutes later, they spotted the man floating motionless on his back, and then he disappeared. Bangs and his crew searched for hours but couldn't find him. By the time they gave up, they had been in the frozen seas for 22 hours straight, and they were soaked. None of the seven officers aboard the Pendleton's bow, including Captain Fitzgerald, ever appeared. Only that one man, and he died before he could tell the story. It was assumed they were all swept off the ship. We'll return to our story right after this sponsor message. Discover why critics are calling Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes the best film of the franchise. What a wonderful day! It's a jaw-dropping spectacle that demands to be seen on the biggest screen possible. I need to go. Hang on. It is our time. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Now playing only in theaters. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member? For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. And now, back to our story. On the bow of the Fort Mercer, Captain Petzl and his crew were becoming desperate. The front of their bow was sticking completely out of the water, while the aft section and its unheated chart room was the only place they could find relative safety. And it was sinking fast. They had no lights and no way to signal the circling Yakutat. They finally made the difficult and only remaining choice to move from the chart room to the forecastle room their only possible escape from the rising water. To get to the forecastle, they had to tie signal flags together, like tying pillowcases together to lower yourself from a high window, and then jump onto an icy deck on a wildly pitching ship and try to walk upward on the icy catwalk. How dangerous was it? Radio man John O'Reilly slipped, lost his footing, and was swept overboard to his death. The remaining eight survivors made it to the forecastle, including Captain Petzl. The skipper of the Yakutat saw them trying to get to the forecastle, saw O'Reilly get swept overboard, and dropped inflatable rafts into the sea, letting the wind drive the rafts toward the Fort Mercer's bow. The men on the Fort Mercer saw the life rafts drifting toward them and were now faced with the very hard decision of staying on the bow or jumping 50 feet down into a raft that looked very small from four stories up. Three of the eight men crawled to the edge of the deck and jumped, and all three missed the rafts. The shock of the freezing water made swimming nearly impossible, and the churning high sea soon swallowed them up. A fourth tanker crewman, Jerome Higgins, as the Yakutat came closer, jumped in and tried to swim to the cutter, but the sea swallowed him as well. Captain Knob on the Yakutat watched in horror as all this happened. He would write later that this was the worst hour of his life. And that's easy to understand. Now only four men remained on the bow of the Fort Mercer, 
and all they could do was watch and wait, expecting the bow to sink at any moment. By daylight, the captain of the Yakutat saw that the snow and sleet had let up, and although the wind was still howling, the seas had come down a little. The Fort Mercer's bow was still afloat. He ordered the 26-foot lifeboat to be lowered and called out to the survivors on the Mercer's bow not to jump until he gave the signal. Five men were assigned to the lifeboat, which was slowly lowered by block and tackle into the still very high seas. It was a gamble. The waves were now at 40 foot high, better than their previous heights of 60 to 70 feet. They did have daylight, and the snow had stopped, but the wind had not abated much, and the boats were still rocking and pitching, making anything they did extremely dangerous. Ensign William Keeley of Long Branch, New Jersey, was selected to lead this rescue, and he was joined by Gil Carmichael, Paul Black, Edward Mason, Jr., and Walter Terwilliger. The danger here at the beginning was that once the 25-foot Monomoy surf boy was lowered, waves could easily smash it up against the Yakutat's bow. The crewmen would have about 10 minutes of consciousness in the near-freezing water before death overcame them. As the Coast Guard cutter Yakutat rocked with waves, the lifeboat swung away from the cutter and then slammed back into its sides, which cracked the wooden side of the rescue boat. But the crew navigated the damaged lifeboat through the giant swells nevertheless, and pulled up alongside the Fort Mercer, careful not to get too close. The men above were arguing with Captain Petzl, saying that he was worst affected by hypothermia and therefore he should go first. But Petzl refused to agree, not wanting to defy the age-old mariner's rule that the captain always goes last. It might sound silly, but these men lived by these rules, and they often died by them. Finally, they threatened to throw Petzl over if he didn't give in, and he agreed. Petzl jumped, hit the water, and bobbed, and the lifeboat was able to pull near him. He was grabbed and brought aboard, coughing seawater. The next crewman, the purser, Turner, jumped, and just as they pulled him aboard, the lifeboat was set reeling into the side of the Fort Mercer, crushing the lifeboat, which now began to sink. The terrifying realization that they would have to abandon the two remaining Mercer crewmen dawned on them, as the captain of the Yakutat ordered them back to the cutter. Crewman Golden and Ferner watched from the deck of the Ford Mercer, and they were glad to see their fellow crewmen make it, but they were understandably worried about their own chances of survival now. Captain Nob of the Yakutat had to order the sinking lifeboat back. He had no choice. He picked up a bullhorn and ordered Ensign Keeley to bring it in. The last chance the Yakutat had of rescuing the remaining two crewmen was now to fire a shot line to the Mercer's bow, to which, once it was secured, assuming it could be secured, the Yakutat would attach a raft to the line and send it across until it stopped at its lowest point, which was in the water between the two ships. The Mercer crewman would slide down the cable to the raft. It was extremely risky in high seas, but it was their only chance left. When the line was secured, one of the two men slid down, his slide ending about 50 feet from the raft, and he made it, swam to the raft, but when he tried to hoist himself into the raft, it turned over. The second man slid down the messenger line into the ocean. The Yakutat crewman watched helplessly as the two men struggled in the water and cheered as suddenly the men were able to flip the raft back over. But in addition to hypothermia, they were facing another perilous situation. The second man who had jumped had not untied the line from the tanker before jumping. No doubt because his hands were frozen so badly he was unable to, 
and now both the men on the raft were so frozen that they couldn't operate a jackknife to cut the line, meaning the raft couldn't be pulled to the cutter. The captain of the Yakutat was faced with a hard decision. If he backed down and the line between the cutter and the raft broke, they were lost. If the line between the raft and the hull were to break, the men would be rescued. It was a 50-50 chance of survival or death, with no other options. Every second meant the men on the raft were closer to hypothermia. The captain ordered reverse engines. The lines tightened and jumped up out of the water. A second or two passed with lives hanging in the balance. Every man watching held his breath. The line between the hull of the Ford Mercer and the raft then broke with a snap, and men cheered with relief as the raft was brought in hand over hand to the cutter. It was one of the many miracles that happened during those two days. The last two men from the bow of the Fort Mercer had been saved. As a grateful Golden and Ferner were being hauled up the netting on the side of the Yakutat, the bow of the Fort Mercer reared up, pointing straight up toward the sky, then pivoted, falling backward into the sea, sending up a huge spray as if it were a giant whale, and sunk until only a small portion of its keel remained above water. Had the men stayed on just 20 minutes longer, they would have gone down with it. If it had been a movie script, few would have believed it. But it happened exactly that way. Yet another perilous life-saving operation was about to take place as the survivors aboard the stern section of the Fort Mercer waited and wondered when they would be sinking. They had power, lights, pumps, and heating, but no radio. The cutter east wind showed up on the scene, but due to the wild pitching of the Fort Mercer's stern section, no one could risk getting close without a major collision. The ocean-going tug Akushnet reached the scene, and Captain Peterson of the East Wind responded to a call from the tug's commander, Captain Joseph, suggesting that they bring the Akushnet in close to the Ford Mercer so that the survivors could jump to the deck of the Akushnet. The ocean-going tug was smaller and more maneuverable than the cutters, but it was still very risky. They couldn't get around facing the fact that the Ford Mercer's stern could sink any minute. However, they had to make a decision. The helmsman of the Acosta was ordered to approach the tanker from the rear and glide it alongside until 10 feet remained between the two ships. That itself was extremely dangerous with this type of wave action and with the ship and the tug rocking and pitching from the waves and the wind. At that point, with 10 feet between them, the tug would cut her engines and drift in closer to the Mercer. The biggest risk was getting torn up by the Mercer's 11-foot prop, which was partially exposed above the water and all it would take would be the right wave. And on the first try, that's exactly what happened. A huge wave picked up the tug and threw her toward that prop, and Captain Joseph shouted into his power phone, Ahead on starboard, back on port. With about three feet left between the huge Mercer prop and the tug, the tug's engines pulled her out of harm's way. The tug circled back again for a second try, closed the distance between ships to a couple of feet, and cut the engines again. The survivors were paralyzed with fear, and you couldn't blame them. They had been watching all this. Coast Guard Lieutenant George Mahoney, Sid Morris, John Milbauer, and other Coasties were out on the rear deck of the Acushta, slipping and sliding on the frozen deck and shouting, Come on, guys! Jump! We'll catch you! But no one moved. Finally, one survivor hooked his leg over the rail and paused, waiting for the cutter to rise up on the next wave so that it would be close enough to try to jump. He threw himself forward and made it to the deck. 
The others saw that he had made it, and they lined up to try. The second man jumped, and he made it. The third, however, paused too long and leaped as the cutter was falling. His feet hit the riddle of the acoustic, and he fell backward into the now narrowing space between the two ships. Two coasties managed to grab him, but his waterlogged weight was too much for them, and they were getting pulled into the ocean as well. Three more Acosta crewmen grabbed their mates, and somehow, despite the icy deck, finally were able to pull their crewmen back safely onto the Acosta. But having watched all this drama, the remaining Fort Mercer survivors wanted no part of it. They hung near the rail. Near enough that when the Acosta rose up on a swell, the Coast Guardsmen were close enough to grab two of them and hauled them over the rail and onto the tug. At that moment, a huge wave grabbed the Fort Mercer's stern and listed it so high that it appeared it would suck the acoustic underneath and then crash down upon it. Men screamed and scattered off the deck of the acoustic, and the captain shouted, Full speed ahead! And the tug's engines revved to life. And just in the nick of time, the edges of that huge Mercer propeller, with the full force of the ship behind it, just nicked the stern rail of the tug. A few more inches would have meant destruction and the sinking of the tug. A total of eight men had made it from the Fort Mercer to the Acoustic. The remaining thirteen had decided to stay on the Fort Mercer. The Acoustic had no choice but to leave, headed for Boston, as two of the men were in need of hospitalization. They arrived on the Boston docks at 8 a.m. Wednesday and were met by a crowd with reporters present. The stern section of the Fort Mercer, with the thirteen crewmen aboard, was towed the following day into Newport. The bow of the Pendleton finally washed up near the site of the recently moved Pollock Rip lightship, and when men went aboard to search it, there were no bodies upon the first search. Captain John Fitzgerald and his seven-man crew had been washed overboard. One body was found later, that of Harmon G. Gatlin of Greenville, Mississippi. He had been assigned the watchman post and likely died of frostbite and hypothermia that first night. His body was brought in to Chatham Coast Guard Station. At Chatham, in a message to the Chatham Lifeboat Station the day after the rescue, Rear Admiral H.G. Bradbury, commander of the 1st Coast Guard District, sent his personal congratulations to Boson's mate First Class Weber and his crew for their outstanding seamanship and utter disregard of their own safety in crossing the hazardous waters of Chatham Bar in mountainous seas, extreme darkness, and falling snow during a violent winter gale to rescue from imminent death 32 crew members minutes before the tanker capsized. Boson's mate Bernie C. Weber, U.S. Coast Guard Chatham, Massachusetts, and his three volunteer crew members all received the Treasury Department's coveted gold life-saving medal for extreme and heroic daring during the Pendleton rescue. Actually, when Bernie Weber was first informed, he was told he was going to receive the gold medal and that his three crewmen were to receive silver medals. He flatly told the Coast Guard that unless his crewmates received gold as well, he wouldn't participate. They deserved no less. The Coast Guard listened, and they all received the highest award the Coast Guard could offer. A film titled The Finest Hours and based on the book titled The Finest Hours by Michael J. Togias and Casey Sherman was released January 25, 2016 by Walt Disney Films, and it handled the story pretty faithfully with just a few exceptions. The film starred Chris Pine and Casey Affleck. For those of you who saw the film or might be interested in watching it soon, here are some of those exceptions. In the film, Bernie and his girlfriend Miriam were on the brink of getting engaged when Bernie set out on the rescue mission. 
that the screenwriters took liberties with the timeline here, since Bernie, who was played by Chris Pines, and Miriam, who was played by Holiday Granger, had actually been married for more than a year and a half by that February, but their real-life courtship did play out pretty much as it did in the film. The rescue took place largely as depicted in the movie, with the exception of the producer's choice of the song the men sang to soothe themselves during a moment of overwhelming fear. Boson Clough told the men to proceed as directed, even after hearing Bernie's report of the 60- to 70-foot waves beyond the bar. As they approached, the men did sing Rock of Ages to comfort themselves. Also, the movie has Miriam encountering the widow of one of the victims after she crashes her car into a snowbank. And later she barged into Chatham Station, demanding that Commanding Officer Clough call Bernie back home, and it had her waiting at the pier to welcome him upon his return. But in truth, Miriam had the flu and she was at home throughout the rescue. There are some other interesting backstories involved with this rescue. The best place to start is with the Finest Hours co-author Michael Togayas, who, in his acknowledgement, mentions a few interesting facts about how he and co-author Casey Sherman came to collaborate on the story. As just mentioned, the book The Finest Hours served as the source for the movie. Both authors were working on the story unbeknownst to each other, until Casey Sherman was told one day that another man was working on it as well. Sherman called Togayas, and they decided to join forces on it. The book is excellent, and we highly recommend it. There was a lot of material available through the Coast Guard's Marine Board of Evaluation findings, as well as some of the reporters who gathered on the docks to greet the returning lifeboats. Reporters from the Boston Globe, the Boston Herald, the Cape Cod Times, the New York Times, Portland Maine Herald, and the Providence Journal. This was also in the days when reporters actually did their jobs and tried to get the whole story and the backstory. There was also Bernie Weber's book, Chatham, the Lifeboatman, and others that told about Coast Guard life around Cape Cod, as well as shipwrecks and local history. And then there were interviews with the men themselves. The authors went to great lengths to get the stories of the Coasties involved during those rescues. And we'll start with a summary of Bernie Weber's life and career and how it was affected by all the notoriety the rescue brought him. Notoriety that neither he nor his crew wanted. The four men were given the name the Gold Medal Crew, and their stories were told in the training bases and in all the print media. Weber could never get over the death of Tiny Myers, though. He was haunted by it, and he wanted none of the attention that was constantly being showered upon him. He asked for a transfer from Chatham to Woodhole, which is on the opposite side of Cape Cod and a much larger facility to try and get a fresh start. He also commanded the station at Race Point, and later came back to Chatham, where on one day he pulled off another rescue using the same lifeboat, the CG-36500. And again, this boat made a miracle save, when the boat deviated from the circular padding he was running in a search for survivors of a sunken fishing boat, and went straight south for no good reason, and came upon the captain floating and appearing very dead. But when they hauled the captain up, he sputtered, and came alive. Bernie felt that same hand of God at work at that time as he had with the Pendleton. Later he was sent to Vietnam in 1965 to try and help shut down the Viet Cong supply lines along the rivers, and afterwards served in the Philippines until his retirement in 1966. Irwin Mask served out his enlistment and headed for dry land. He didn't want, he didn't want any part of the ocean anymore. And dry land for him was back home in Marionette, Wisconsin, where he married and raised a family. He stayed as far away from water as he could, even refusing offers to go fishing. And he rarely mentioned his Coast Guard experiences to his kids. 
Andy Fitzgerald parted with the Coast Guard eight months after the Pendleton rescue. He went on to get an engineering degree, but he liked sales better. He married and ended up as a branch manager for a motor and clutch distribution company in Denver, Colorado, way up high in the Rockies, as far from the ocean as he could get. Richard Livesey stayed with the Coast Guard, transferring from station to station just as Bernie was doing, and ended up working on a security detail which accompanied then-President John F. Kennedy on his travels while in New England. He retired and moved to Florida in 1980, taking small jobs to augment his retirement income. One of his last jobs was working as a janitor for a high school, swabbing the decks there with a mop the same way he had swabbed decks so many years ago. In 2002, a reunion was held. All travel costs and expenses for the crew paid for, thanks to the insistence of Bernie, who was in on the planning. It was held at the Mariner's House in Boston's North End. Irwin Mask had recently undergone knee surgery, and he was shaky. He was also worried that a reunion might bring back the memories of that rescue, memories that he had tried to shut down. Andy Fitzgerald and Richard Livesey were all in. A survivor from the S.S. Pendleton was found and invited as well. Weber and Livesey had both stayed in the guard and needed no reintroduction. As for Bernie, the most emotional moment came when he saw Irwin Mask for whom Webber always maintained a special place in his memory, as Mask had only been a guest at Chatham Station that day when Bernie asked for volunteers, but showing a tremendous amount of courage, he volunteered nonetheless. When Bernie saw him, he wrapped his arms around him in a tearful embrace. The men then all took a ride around the harbor in the restored lifeboat CG-36500, and when it was all over a few days later, they went back to their homes and their jobs. Bernie Weber passed away on January 24, 2009, two days after sending this email, complete with pictures of the recently refurbished CG-36500, an email he had sent to the authors of The Finest Hours. It read, Guys, here's your boat. If a movie is made, she'll be ready. Just like brand new. I won't be around, but give her a kiss for me. Signed, Bernie. We are especially honored to have with us one of the bravest of the brave, Andy Fitzgerald, Coast Guard Engineer. Andy was one of four Coast Guardsmen whose daring high seas rescue of the SS Pendleton crew back in 1952 is the basis of Walt Disney Studios' newest feature film, The Finest Hours. Please join us as we salute him for his courage and commitment to the United States of America. We had a job to do and we did it, and I was happy to do it. If your job was to go out and rescue somebody, then no matter how hard you thought it was going to be, you made up your mind to do it, and I was happy to do it. I first met him in Chatham, that's where I met him, and, and he offered to me, hey, if you ever need any advice or anything, you know, give me a call. He never presented himself as, you know, that know-all type person. It's that kind of leadership you get from him but he didn't come up with a marching band to give it to you. I always appreciated that. And so didn't everybody else that knew him. Yet he was this hero. He was this guy that accomplished one of the, one of the toughest jobs in Coast Guard history. Himself and three other individuals. And I always add that because he did. So I used him as a benchmark from that day forward on how I would do business in the Coast Guard. And I've passed that along to any crewman that it's ever worked for me.
a signal and the message that Bernie Weber sends to the rest of the Coast Guard is it is our job to take things that are in the too hard, too locker, pull them out, find a way to make it happen, and that's the way we save lives and get people back their lives. And that is the lasting legacy of Bernie Weber. And like I say, if there was anyone else in the whole world that I, would, would take me out and get me back, and I knew we were going to come back, by the way, there would have been Bernie. Thanks for joining us at 1001 Heroes, the Legends, Histories, and Mysteries podcast. I hope you enjoyed this story, and if you did, send us a review. There are more heroes and more inspirational stories to come, along with our legends and mysteries, and we enjoy having you with us to experience them. Thanks for your support at patreon.com forward slash 1001 Stories Network and for sharing our show with friends and family. Stay tuned next week, Sunday night at 8 p.m. Eastern Time for a brand new episode from 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries. This is your host, John Hagedorn, reminding all of you to stay safe out there, and we'll be back soon. mental health facts let's go nearly 2 million ohioans live with a mental health condition in the u.s more than 50 percent of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide so why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma ohio challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org